I am so pleased to know that you are celebrating your 100th birthday on the 13th of January 2021. I send my congratulations and best wishes to you on such a special occasion, Elizabeth R. And it is, it is signed in, in proper ink. Well, yes, it looks like it, doesn't it? Mm, yes. It does. Happy birthday, happy belated birthday. happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. My celebration of my 100th birthday was Margaret and Derek and a Chinese takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> I do the Scotsman crossword every day. The cryptic crossword today is dedicated to Margaret McKee, who celebrates her 100th birthday today, and I thought, golly, that was goodness <laughs> <laughs> that weirdness. Oh, that's oh, lovely. That's amazing. It was rather. I want you to meet two remarkable women. That was Margaret, and this is Anne. I played golf, I looked after my house, I looked after the garden, I went out with friends. When we were children, the parents took a house at Gillen every April and golfed in the morning, sat around in the afternoon and golfed when my father came down from, the, from his work. Any birthday plans? Not yet. I'm, I'm waiting for the world to get itself organised. I don't mind whether they come or not. I'd be delighted if they can, but it's a bit hard. Two remarkable women who in 2021 are reaching a milestone many of us can only dream of. They're celebrating their 100th birthdays. Margaret McKee, concentrating on the Scotsman crossword, and Anne Moen, with her love of golf, are two very different people, and they've lived very different lives. Is there anything they share beyond scoring that century which we can learn from? What can Margaret and Anne teach us about who gets to live to 100? This is the Who Gets to Be 100 podcast from the Lothian Birth Cohorts at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Penny Latin, and the Lothian Birth Cohorts is an extraordinary longitudinal study into how our brain and thinking skills change throughout life, and why some brains age better than others. We're going to hear all about the study, its origins, what kind of research it has entailed, and what it has discovered over the course of this series of podcasts. So to understand more about how and why Margaret and Anne have reached this age, we need to know some more about them. I've got 23 immediate family. I met Margaret got... along with her daughter, also Margaret, who you'll hear in the background at her home in Edinburgh. Five grandchildren who are all married. I've got nine great-grandchildren with another one coming in July. So that takes, at the moment, 23 immediate families. Tell me a bit about where you grew up, your childhood, family. Where did you actually hail from? Down Abbey Hill in Edinburgh. And I had one brother two years younger than me. And my mum and dad, and we lived in a flat down at Abbey Hill. And I was there till, I think I was about five or so. And when my grandmother died and my family moved up to Slateford, which is just along the road there, 
uh, to look after my, my grandfather. And that's where I grew up until I thought I was, I, w I went to school from there. And then I was there until I think in my teens and then I moved further up the road. It's still in the same area. And what do you remember about those houses growing up? What was family life like? There was no money for extras. We, we didn't suffer at all on the basics. We were always a very happy, I've got a very happy memories of my young. I mean, we all got on very well together. But as I say, it was basic because we had to be, I know that we had, they had to be very careful financially. But as I say, we never, we, we never missed out on the necessary bits. Did both your parents work? What did your parents do for a living? My father was worked on the railway. At one time he was called a wear. He worked in a little both off in Lothian Road. He used to weigh things going out and in. And then he became a loader later on. He always had a job, but not well paid. I mean, it was never a... I, my mother never worked at all. Oh, not, not not outside. I mean, she just was at home looking after us all the time. My mother came from farming stock, which it must have been a tremendous difference to her to come and live in the centre of the town. Where did you go to school, Margaret? Uh, we, I started school from when once we walked up to Slatesford. I went to Craiglockert School. Mm -hmm. And I was there and all that's, that's where I got my primary education. What do you remember about it? Not a lot. I mean, I was very happy at school, both schools. I can always remember saying to my mother the day I left, I went on to Muir for my second secondary school. I remember saying to my mother when I came home, I would never be happy again after I left school because I, lo I loved it so much and then she just said to me I think you will. <laughs> a short way across the city and by contrast couldn't wait to leave school. I can remember finishing school and saying at last I don't need to come to this building anymore but <laughs> I was at Cranley School which pre-war was a very academic school it's quite different now. And were you very academic? Did you like school? What was school like? Oh, it was, a, it was good. Miss Niven and Miss Moon were excellent head teachers. Many people went on to university. I had an, an, an up and down time because there was a period when they found that I was good at maths. And, oh, I stood for about a quarter of an hour with the, with the school inspector answering questions of problems he put on the board, you know, explain this in ordinary it's words and so on and so forth. So they thought they had a genius in the maths line. It wasn't really, but... <laughs> That kind of made them sit up and think I ought to be doing something more. And really, all I wanted to do was to get my hands and get on with it. I remember <laughs> meeting my friend 
to go to school, we used to meet when we when we lived in Morningside Terrace. So shows we were five, and we met in Morningside uh, Park to walk to school together. And she met me and said she wasn't coming to school that day because she couldn't do the sums. So she went home. So I had to go home too because I wasn't going to walk by myself. And mother put on her coat and I went to school. Don't think you're getting out of school. <laughs> what kind of a child were you? Were you a well-behaved child, naughty child? How, if you had to think back and describe your younger self, what were you like, Anne? Oh, I don't know what I was like. Ask somebody else. <laughs> Did you get in trouble much? Were you well-behaved? Uh, and I got in trouble quite uh, for, for a bit. I don't know what sort of trouble, but I did. <laughs> and, uh, oh no, it was quite an easy life. Though they, my mother got very angry with me sometimes over what I thought were trivial things. Um, and so we didn't really um, hit it off as well as we should have done. <laughs> but we did later on, when I was grown up. What, what did your parents do for a living? Did they both work or was it just your dad working? Tell me about that. My father was a dental surgeon in uh, Randolph Crescent. And um, mother didn't work at all. I realise now that she must have looked after the garden up in Braid Road, because <laughs> I don't think we had a gardener. But I was at school and wouldn't know that she was doing that. So while Margaret and Anne led very different lives on different sides of Edinburgh, there's something very unique about their school life that connects them to this day. I was taken out of class and put in a lower, lower class for the morning because of my age. <laughs> and I sat at a desk in the art room, which had special desks that went up or down for doing art. And we sat there and did this thing we were asked to do. It was June 1932, and this thing was a unique intelligence test. It was called the Scottish Mental Survey. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, the yes. Scottish Mental the, the, yes. Survey uh -huh. Test. I remember that so much that we, we were told that most of the children in Edinburgh schools would be doing this test this day. And we were most impressed, of course. And then we were also told, you will never be told how you've done in it, which surprised us because, of course, we were used to doing exams at school and then getting results. <laughs> but no, we were, and of course, I never did hear again about it until all these years later. Margaret, who was in an Edinburgh Council school, and Anne, who was at a private school, along with 
almost all other 11-year-olds born in 1921 who attended a Scottish school sat the Scottish Mental Survey. Testing thinking skills of an entire year of birth in a nation's population isn't just rare, it's unique. Ian Deary is Professor Emeritus of Differential Psychology at the University of Edinburgh. No country has ever done this before or since, whereby they've tested an entire nation's intelligence. So Scotland did this on Monday, June the 1st, 1932. It tested pretty well all the nation's children who'd been born in 1921. So they were about 11. They got about 95% of them, which is about what you'd expect given school absences and things. And they tested 87,498. Now, this is obviously a massive undertaking and there had to be a, a good reason for doing it. And the reason was an international conference called the International Examinations Inquiry. It was funded by Carnegie in the States, the Carnegie Foundation, and they got North American and European countries together at Eastbourne at a nice hotel there in 1931. And they were worried. This group, and sadly the group was all men, such were things at that time, they were worried about fairness in school examinations and they were trying to find out ways in which school performance could be fairly assessed and each country took away from that conference to come back a few years later a research project and Scotland took the following. They were interested in these newfangled things called intelligence type tests and Scotland thought it would be interesting to test the entire nation. The reason being that they thought this might be some kind of a guide for how many people in the country, how many young people needed special attention, those who weren't scoring quite so well, who could be given more and better education to catch up, and those perhaps way up at the top end who might need a different type of schooling to keep them interested. So the reason they did it was this conference, they had a duty to get back, and also the idea was to get fairer and better education for all targeted to people's cognitive capabilities. But I mean, this kind of survey might raise eyebrows in terms of ethics nowadays, but can you set it in the context for the time and explain that side of it? The 1932 Scottish Mental Survey w was entirely to do with education. Uh, it was the later survey that was more about where the, the, the population was heading. So, so nobody had any thought of that kind in 1932 when they, we did that actual survey. I think you're right to raise ethical things because it's always interesting to compare now and then, isn't it? And we know the things that we have to undergo nowadays, whereby if we change a very, very small thing about how we test individuals, we would go back to a medical ethics committee and a group of experts would look that over and make it sure it's OK. But you can imagine in those days, having got 95% of the population and I am not privy to every letter that went out, but I'm pretty sure they didn't write every single parent to say, can we get permission to test the 87,498 children? Not least because it was all done on a, a shoestring anyway. Question one. Do you understand that you must do your best and not ask questions? If so, write B. Question two. And then the next day or a few days after, I don't know how long, I was summoned again and I went up to another room 
there was a stairs up into the tower of Cranley School. It was still there. <laughs> and I was summoned up there where I had a lot of hands-on puzzles and things. Man is to clothes as what is to fur. Underline the I can remember word. sitting it. I didn't remember Coat, a great deal about it. Animal. It was a sort of bird, test that was completely different. It was more puzzles than academic. And of course, we'd been used to doing the like of arithmetic, spelling and things like that. And it was quite different. But it suited me because that's the sort of thing I love doing. <laughs> so you're a puzzle, you're a puzzle girl, aren't you? Because of the crosswords. So oh, I would have absolutely. thought you'd have been all over that um, test. <laughs> oh, I mean, I do all the not only the Scotsman crossword every day, but the, the Scotsman has a whole page of other types of, and I do that every day as well. As Margaret said, neither she nor Anne ever found out the results of their tests. They were safely stored away until one day. It was 1997, 15 years after I had been started in psychology, that my life changed by discovering the Scottish mental surveys. I've got a friend called Professor Lawrence Whaley, and he and I have done quite a lot of work together before and after we discovered the, the mental surveys. And Lawrence wrote to me when we hadn't been in contact for a wee while, saying that he, up in Aberdeen, had heard about a cohort of individuals who had some data collected. It was a cardiovascular disease cohort. And it just so happened they'd been born in 1921. But I must underscore, this is not the sample I'm going to go on to talk about. But Lawrence wrote and said, would I like to collaborate in doing some cognitive testing, testing of thinking skills? And I said, well, it wouldn't be all that useful unless they had had already tested cognitive function before they'd, they'd got ill, and, and Lawrence said that they hadn't. And at the same time, I happened to be reading something, a book, and I'd read about these Scottish mental surveys. And so I wrote back to Lawrence, and I've still got a copy of that letter, where I said, our luck might be in here because it looks like Scotland has tested the entire nation. And I knew by then it was the Scottish Council for Research in Education who'd done this testing. And I'd said to Lawrence, and I knew their address, and I said to Lawrence, it'd be quite good if we could find them. So Lawrence then took the baton from me, and his wife then, uh, Patricia, was the one who physically went down to uh, St John Street in Edinburgh and found the Scottish mental survey data were still there, securely locked away in a cage, and some of the data never having been looked at for decades. While we leave Ian, Lawrence and Patricia for a moment to start going through that data, I wanted to find out some more about Margaret and Anne. Anne's family lived in a big house with a garden in Morningside, a residential suburb in the southwest of Edinburgh. Whereas Margaret and her family were from across the city in Abbey Hill, an area largely composed of streets of tenement housing. Her father worked on the railways. I wanted to know what life held for Margaret and Anne after they left school. I was there in the RAF for four years. It was wartime. What are your memories of that? Oh, very mixed. It was great fun. Some of it, a lot of it. I did the plotting. And it was told afterwards that was Churchill coming back from... <laughs> from... New York or 
something like that, like, you know, one that we were suddenly plotting right across and he was a friendly aircraft and we thought, why we've got our eyes on him. And after the RAF, where did life take you then? I went to London, did a secretarial course and became a secretary. And then after I'd had that for some years, I had a relation who had left money. So I took a trip round the world. Tell me about that. Where did you go? Wow. When was this? A typewriter in one hand and a bag in the <laughs> other. Um, I went first, I went in a ship, a liner, all the way to Australia. That was great fun. How long did it take to get there? It takes about five weeks, doesn't it? We went to Cairo, and then we went down through the Suez Canal, Colombo. Were you travelling on your own? Yes. How old were you? 25, about. 25, 27, I can't remember. Anne's travels took her from Australia to New Zealand, up to Canada and the United States. In the following years, she would travel around Europe with friends before settling on a career in teaching. Did you, en- did you enjoy teaching, Anne? Yes, I did. It was a challenging thing. And um, I went to, from the, from... <coughs> I went to St George's to teach there and it was really very very much the same in a different way. Did you ever have family of your own? What about relationships or or did you share your life with anyone else? No. No. So teaching occupied a big part of it. What did you do when you weren't teaching? I played golf. I looked after my house. I looked after the garden. I went out with friends. Happy uh, life? You enjoy your life? Did you oh, enjoy yes. all these things? How much during the, the course of your life have you been conscious about Deliberately keeping healthy. I mean, these days everyone's out running and on their bikes and there's a big thing about fitness. But were you conscious of of wanting to be fit or look after no. your health? No, because we were very fortunate. We were just healthy children. In fact, my sister wasn't so healthy. She had the sneezes and weasels all the time. But... Um, I was very healthy, and so was my brother. And that continued into adulthood by the yes. sound of it. Did you ever drink much? Were you, did you drink alcohol during your lifetime? Oh yes, but mostly when there was in company. I mean, I didn't sit and drink it on my own. I was in Edinburgh in the same house I was in until I was married. 
tell me about who you married. How did all that come about? We met in the office. I worked in St Andrew's House, a civil servant, and he was he was unfortunate because he passed the civil service exam and was sent to London in September 1939, and of course was in London during the Blitz, and eventually got a transfer back to Edinburgh and landed in the same office as I, as I was in, and that was it. Was it love at first sight? Tell me about him. What was, he, what was he like? Was this was this love at first sight? What was his name? His name was Bill. He and Margaret, I remember him very well. <laughs> so you got married, 1947. What date? 19th of September. 19th of September, 1947. That's right. Two months before the Queen, actually. She was, she was married the whole year, same year. <laughs> was it a big wedding? No, it couldn't be at that time because there were still restrictions. We had, I mean, it was a church wedding. I wanted that. I wanted that because I had a, a great church connection all my life. And it was a church wedding, and we had a reception, but uh, basic, basic, because there was just that, just the way it was in 1947. What was family life like? Oh, lovely. Absolutely. I mean, that's all I wanted. Yeah. I mean, I, I gave up work right away. I mean, uh, of course, it wasn't, I mean, it, wives didn't work so much at that time. It wasn't such a done thing as it is now. I mean, I, when I got married, I, I just was retired and that was it. And then. Well, you didn't retire. <laughs> it's hard work. <laughs> oh, well, but I was retired, retired from office work. <laughs> and and I was quite happy. I mean, that's the way I wanted it. And I, I would have hated to have gone out to work when I had my babies. Because I just wanted to be here for them. In fact, when they used to come home from school, they used to come and shout if I wasn't in, in the living room when they came in. We used to go on holiday, eh, just round about, over to Fife or somewhere like that. And all the self-catering, of course. But usually, my father only got one week's holiday in the year, and he used to come with us for a week. And then, if we if we had taken a house for more than a week, he used to travel back and forward. Because that's why, of course, we were just we were just over in Fife. And of course, the fact to see that he worked in the railway, he could get a train ticket cheaper. <laughs> if you had to pick one, can you pick a favourite decade or period of time over the past 100 years? When have you been happiest? I tell you when I was best physically was when I was pregnant, strangely enough. And of course I loved when the children were growing up particularly before they went to school, when they were little. And of course, I'm having such a lovely time now with not the, exactly the next generation, but the next, because I've got nine grand, great-grandchildren who are the joy of my life. Not that I can see them at the moment, of course, but uh, 
that's been it's been children it's my my family that have been my my great life what is it that you get from them that you enjoy so much just the love for a start I mean they're all so wonderful to me and I mean I'm just so interested in what they're all doing and I just love to hear from and as I say, I've now got this little grand pad here and I can actually see them. And it's lovely. What is the grand pad? It's, it's just a little... So it's a, a, and a sort of iPad computer yeah, type yes, thing? Uh, yes, it doesn't need uh, internet. It doesn't, need it doesn't internet. do internet, but, but I can call up people or they can call me my, and I see, I see my, my little ones and got it in my hand here if you're wondering what they were. That must that must feel like a, a big change, does it? In in ways of we can communicate. Ah, oh, okay. So you can call people on that I and see them. It's got a big screen. Yeah, that's right, yes. Mm -hmm. That must be quite a dramatic change. Oh that's been tremendous. It sounds to me like you've had a very a very happy life. Oh, indeed, yes. A very content life. Absolutely, yes. But we all have ups and downs in life and emotional challenges. Mm -hmm. What have been the big challenges for you, emotionally or stress-wise, looking back over your lifetime? What's bothering me now is my lack of mobility. I still want to do things as I always did and of course I either can't do them or it takes me about three times as long as it used to and that's fr I find frustration at the moment but I, I sh and then I sit down and give myself a good talking to and say well remember the age you are and I know I mean I'm very very lucky to be as well as I am having reached a hundred. Do you have any thoughts on why you've managed to live to this age? What's the secret to I living have, to a hundred? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no, no. I've done nothing special. I mean, I, it was never a, a target for me to reach a hundred. In fact, I remember I had about in my late eighties, I had to get an ear replacement. And the surgeon had said to me something, I said, my main frustration is that I can't do gardening and walking as I used to. And then I, I said, he says, well, remember, a knee, a knee replacement is very much more of a challenge for somebody your age than a hip replacement. So I said to him, do you think I should go ahead with it then? Because if not, I'm quite happy to go. He said, he looked at me and he said, you? He says, I think you're going on till you're 100. That's come back to me often since then. <laughs> I've often wondered, you know, if I should write to him and say, I've done it. <laughs> and then I said, I can remember clearly what I said to him. I said, you know, I don't think I want to go to 100 unless I'm still mentally alert. And uh, that, that's that's still the case, you see. That's, uh, but I can remember so clearly he said that to me. And there is the big question. What if we could try to understand not just who might live to be 100, but how might our thinking skills change as we age? 
Is it just luck? Our genes? Or years of education? And what we do? Is it our friends and hobbies? Where we were born? What we eat? And if we keep fit? Does it matter at all? Margaret and Anne, in reaching 100 this year, are a clear example that a healthy, long and independent life is possible. They give us a hope. And more, it turns out they are part of the answer for what we understand about healthy ageing. To find out how, we need to go back to that school test in 1932. Professor Deary again, who we left searching through the data of the test results with his friend Lawrence Wally and his uh, wife, Lawrence Patricia. The data. Lawrence remembers me saying to him that this will change our lives. I don't remember saying that, but he insists that I did. And he was right. This was a trove that very rarely happens to a researcher where they get something whose practical importance is immediately obvious. That is this. In looking at how age and what age brings with it affects our thinking skills, very few people have a baseline. You could probably understand that if you get lots and lots of older people and give them all cognitive tests, some will score better than others. But you will then be in the dark. You will not know whether the folks that are scoring well always did well or the score who, the people who scored poorly always scored poorly. Perhaps some of, some of those scoring not so well used to be quite good, but things have happened to them over the life course. We suddenly had this baseline data. We could actually look from age 11, when the Scottish Mental Survey was done, into old age and see who had stayed steady and who had gone down and perhaps even who had gone up. So that's how we found this treasure trove and that's how we realised that it might be very useful in looking at something that these days is, is reckoned and known to be really important. More people, thank goodness, are living longer and living to older ages. But that brings with it some of the aspects of older age that involve cognitive decline among some people. And it's good to know what's causing that. And it's good to know whether amelioration can be done either in older age or during the, the life course. And at that point, the light bulb lit for Ian Lawrence and his late friend and colleague, geriatrician Professor John Starr. They would try and contact the surviving schoolchildren from the Lothian area and ask them back in to start repeating the test they did back in 1932 when they were just 11 years old. I had Three friends, three, three of us who were at school at Muir together, kept up afterwards and we were all the same age. And one of my friends said that she, that she had got word from her uh, medical people, that her, her doctor surgery, to say that they, they had found these papers from all these years ago and were hoping to catch up with people born in 1921. Why did you want to do it then? Why, why did it appeal? As, as an idea? I don't know why, we just thought it would be exciting to do and we, we both remembered doing the test all these years ago and thought it would be lovely to follow it up and see just see what was involved. It was interesting doing the papers because you realised that goodness you did this when you were 10, you know. Here you were doing it again. Realising these data were there in 1997. By September 1999, the first 
of the Lothian birth cohort 1921 people came through and by 2001 we had 550 people of the now famous, and I don't put that down to us, I put that down to their very unusual data, the now famous Lothian birth cohort 1921 were fully tested by 2001 and then they came back almost every three years until they were about 92. And of course, this year we're, we're uh, celebrating with the new director uh, writing out uh, birthday cards to those of them who are reaching 100. In the next episode of Who Gets to Be 100, we'll dive into the Lothian Birth Cohorts project in more detail, meeting the testers and the researchers and hear about their remarkably close relationship with Anne, Margaret and the rest of the participants. And when they came to the clinic, it was actually like, um, you know, seeing a friend again. And I think the majority of participants that came back actually had quite a nice time and they actually looked forward to it and, and enjoyed um, coming. But they were so remarkable. A lot of them were like so interesting. Yep. Now, I'm going to give you four blocks and I'm going to ask you to make one just like the design I've made and tell me when you are finished. We start? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it's two red at the bottom, uh, a white at the top, and finished. That's fantastic. Okay, now I'm going to take these away. I'm going to scramble these. I'm Penny Latin, and Who Gets to Be a Hundred is an Adventurous Audio Limited production for the Lothian Birth Cohort Study at the University of Edinburgh. Thank you.